Welcome to the Major Journey Podcast, where we showcase stories from cannabis industry power players. Guests take us on journeys and immerse us in the roller coaster ride, both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth in their personal and professional lives. Today's special guest completed 10 years of formal training in biological research and science education, earning a bachelor's in science in genetics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. He has over four years of experience at one of the fastest growing tech startups in legal cannabis and over time has acquired a unique expertise in the chemical composition of commercial cannabis as it relates to consumer preferences and behavior. Today, he is the Director of Science and Innovation at Leafly and Chair of the Scientific Advisory Board for DOSIS. He leads efforts in research and data strategy, which includes forging strategic partnerships with cannabis testing labs and licensed producers to incorporate laboratory data into Leafly's massive consumer-facing platform. By combining the latest scientific research insights and data science techniques, he works to enhance the Leafly platform by creating exciting new product exploration and recommendation tools for consumers. Without further ado, Nick Jacomis, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. First and foremost, congratulations on all of your hard work and accomplishments. Um, to see all that time, energy, and hard work pay off in a way that is impacting the cannabis space in such a meaningful way must be an incredible feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been a long and interesting road. Um, so I'm really happy with um, how the last few years have gone, even though it, it certainly wasn't planned to go the way it did. And I I don't know how how it's going to go from here. But it has been it has been an interesting ride so far. So I'm definitely glad I made the jump into the industry. Yeah, and so with that said, I don't know too many Harvard University graduates who kind of embarked on their educational journey with a specific goal of entering into the cannabis space. Was this a plan of yours from the get-go, or did you just happen to kind of accidentally walk into the industry by chance, so to say? <laughs> um, it, it's actually neither. Um, I definitely didn't plan this. So, well, I should say I didn't plan it up until the moment I did start to plan it right before I finished my PhD. Hmm. So, you know, ever since I was certainly, certainly since the beginning of college, I, I learned very quickly from getting into laboratory research that that's, that's what I loved. And so from my freshman year of college up until probably the fourth year of my PhD, I had a sort of monastic devotion to science and, and academia. And I knew, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be doing academic research. That is the path I'm on. And that's great because it really gives you a sense of purpose. Like I, I knew, you know, in my bones, that was the path I was on. And as, as happens with many PhD students, I think, especially nowadays, I, you know, by the time I got to my third or fourth year, I realized, you know, I don't know if I want to stay on this path. And by the time I got the last year, I was like, okay, I'm definitely not going to stay on this path. What do I want to do? And long story short, you know, I was always passionate about cannabis as a consumer. I was always interested in cannabis and 
plant chemistry and psychoactive drugs as a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a, a pretty good education throughout the years in how the endocannabinoid system worked and how cannabinoids worked. I had a pretty good education in psychoactive drugs from cannabinoids through psychedelics, through you know, other research drugs that are used and how they affect the brain and really loved learning about them and what they do in the brain and how they affect the mind. And by the time I got to the end of my PhD, you know, had a pretty good analytical toolkit in terms of data analysis and visualization. And so when it got to that last year, I started thinking, okay, well, if I'm not going to stay on this academic path, what am I going to do? And, you know, this is 2016. So I had had, you know, friends my age or a little bit older who started going into private industry. And historically, I think historically for a PhD, there was this really big trade-off between do I stay in academia and do what I love, but, you know, really live this sort of monastic lifestyle um, where I'm just in the lab all day, every day. And that's all I ever right. do. And I'm writing grants and trying to become a professor and then trying to get tenure and like that, that whole grind right. versus going into industry and having other benefits, but not necessarily getting to work on the most interesting problems that you're as passionate about, you know, going into the pharmaceutical industry or healthcare or consulting or, or whatever. And, and those days are basically over, at least for a lot of people. So nowadays, you know, if you have any sort of analytical or quantitative background in the sciences or in physics or in statistics or biology or, or whatever, there's a lot of fascinating options in the data science world, in the technology world, where, you don't have to live this monastic lifestyle where you're just going to spend the rest of your life in a lab writing grants and working in inside of a university bureaucracy. Um, and you get to work on interesting problems. So, so I, I decided to make the jump. I had had friends that I'd seen, you know, go to places like Twitter or Google or DeepMind or, you know, some other startups that are maybe smaller, um, you know, bio, biotechnology stuff. And there's lots of really interesting stuff out there. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So again, I didn't plan, I didn't plan going into cannabis the whole time, but at some point I had to think, okay, time's almost up. I'm graduating soon. My funding's going to run out. I've really got a few months to figure out like what, what's the next step. Right. So I was like, okay, the cannabis industry is new and it's growing. It's capturing a lot of people's attention. Um, I'm really passionate about cannabis and, and psychoactive drugs and that whole world. I've got this analytical toolkit that works inside of this um, area known as data science. Hmm. That's really becoming more popular and a more popular route for people trained in the sciences to take. And I'm familiar with some interesting companies. So at the time, you know, I knew about Leafly. I'd known about Leafly for maybe a year or two. So it's a really interesting company in the sense that, you know, it's in the cannabis industry, but it's a technology company. It's a consumer-facing right. app. So it's like, okay, they've got a lot of interesting data directly from users, crowdsourced reviews. Um, you know, people were essentially using Leafly for much of its existence as a strain database, as a way to look at a catalog of all the strains that are out there um, to learn about what those things are and to understand how they're affecting them. You know, if you, if you remember, or you just think back to what a, it must've been like in the early days of medical cannabis and the early days of recreational cannabis, you know, a consumer walks into a dispensary, um, especially back then, but even today, this is true. And there's just a lot of stuff. 
there's flour, there's concentrates, even when there's just flour, right? There's all these quote unquote strains and there might be dozens or hundreds of them. And they, they, they're being claimed as having different properties to affect you in different ways. It's just a lot for the human mind to keep track of. And so Leafly was really valuable for consumers because it was this app that you could go to and you could get a sense for how it might, some one strain might affect you versus another one based on the crowdsourced reviews. And, and a lot of people just started plugging in their data to that, you know, putting in the reviews, type, typing reviews about how, how it was affecting them and so on and so forth. So um, the way I actually learned about it was in, in graduate school, I was, I was a cannabis consumer and I had been for a while, but it wasn't legal at the time. So I was just getting cannabis, you know, from my guy right. and, you know, through up, up until, I mean, really up until I moved to Washington, that's, that's how you encounter cannabis. You don't go to the store. You don't know what you're getting. You don't actually care really about the strain or anything because you, you just have what they have. And so I had, you know, I, I purchased a bag of weed as you do, as you did. <laughs> and, um, I, I brought it up to my room and my girlfriend at the time was there. And I said something like, Oh, this is the such and such strain, apparently white widow or whatever it was. And then she was on her phone. She's like, oh yeah, this is probably going to have this, that, and the other effect. And I was like, what are you looking at? And she showed me the Leafly app. And that was sort of my introduction to Leafly. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Because this is, this is really, it's an unregulated market. There was no other, there's really no legal route to have that kind of database at the time. I mean, the database itself isn't illegal, but people that are consuming and using in most jurisdictions an illicit product actually have a way to get information that they can't get anywhere else. They can't go to the, your doctor and ask them about this. You can't go to the store because there are none yet in most places um, at the time. Um, and so that was really interesting. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years when I was finishing my PhD and I thought, okay, the cannabis industry is interesting. Cannabis is interesting to me as a scientist. Um, this is a growing area. Um, there's technology companies like this, Leafly company that I know about. So that seems like a good fit. So I guess that was step one of any planning that happened, right? It was identify what you're interested in, identify where you're going to fit functionally, potentially, right? I have the skill set that, that might be useful to a company like this that's acquiring a lot of data and they need people to, to work on that data in different ways, presumably. And once you identify those two things, what, what are you passionate about? What are you interested in? the intersection of that and what are you useful for? Like, what can you do? And, and then it's really, um, it's relatively straightforward in the sense that you've just got to start picking up the phone and hitting the pavement. So I literally, I was like, okay, how, how do I even, I mean, I didn't know how to do this. I, I mean, I had no knowledge of how you get a job like this or move into the private sector in any way. I, I was literally just, a dude who had been sitting in a lab for almost 10 years um, and just knew that world. So I said, okay, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and I'm going to try to find people like me, people with a PhD, people maybe with a science background, they're in the industry, and I'm going to ask them. And I did. And some people got back to me, some didn't, and that's okay. You just need to deal with that. And they said, well, you just need to start talking to people. And you know, there's a, there's a, someone said there's a medical cannabis conference right there in Boston, which is where I was at the time. And you just need to go. It's like 20 bucks or whatever and find the time to go. And I didn't have a lot of time, but I did find the time. I found, you know, an hour to go there. And I went there because it was there, but also I noticed 
okay, there's this company I've identified, Leafly. One of their executives is going to be there on a panel. I guess I'm just going to show up. I'm going to go listen to the panel, see what I can learn. And then I'm going to see if I can talk to that guy afterwards and just see what happens. And you have to get lucky. And I got lucky and that worked out. So I, I literally showed up. I literally talked to the guy afterwards. He was willing to talk to me. I said, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Is, is there any sort of uh, role for someone like that opening up at a place like Leafly? Because I think I can do some interesting things such as X, Y, and Z. Um, and that ended up working out. And through that connection, I made other connections. And I actually ended up doing two interviews, one at Leafly and one at another company while I was you know, in the library writing my dissertation, you know, working 15 hours a day, you know, squeezing in those interviews. But I guess the point is, you know, I identified what I was interested in outside of academia per se. I identified, you know, the ways that I might be useful to the people with that data doing those things. And then I just figured out how do I get in contact with one of the people over there? And you just got to do that. It's, it's not easy, but it is simple. So, you know, figure out if you can get someone's phone number, figure out if you can show up and talk to someone, don't be a pest, but, but do reach out and be proactive. And, and that's really, you know, there's no magic formula. I think that's really all there is to it. Even to this day at my, in my job, I mean, some of the, the best connections and partnerships and things that I've cultivated simply start because I pick up the phone or I send an email, you know, the, the art of the cold call, um, and I think if you do if you do that the right way and you and you're persistent, um, opportunities will present themselves. So you can't you know you asked me about planning. You can't plan these things out. You know you don't know. I forget who. There's a famous quote by like Eisenhower or something where he said um, or someone said uh, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Mm. So you you have no no one knows what's going to happen ever, but you have to think things through and then, and then go do, and then just, just start reaching out and opportunities will present themselves and you just have to be ready to see them. Yeah. And you mentioned luck about attending the conference in Boston and then, mm -hmm. you know, having the, one of the executives of Leafly participating mm -hmm. on the panel. Do you, to a certain extent, believe that you create your own luck by being so persistent, by being so consistent, and by constantly saying, you know what, I'm going to hit the pavement. I may have not gotten a, a response from an email that I sent yesterday or two weeks ago, but I'm going to continue to keep going. What's mm -hmm. your take on that? Because a lot of people may look at you or look at other people in the space who are saying, wow, they're so lucky that they get to work at this company, or they're so lucky that they had this happen. What's your take on, on luck and the theory of you know, you, you create your own luck by hard work. I think, I think chance favors the prepared mind. It's actually mm. very similar to that other quote. Um, you know, plans are useless, but planning is important. So right. chance favors the prepared mind means that, again, opportunities are going to arise. You can call that luck or whatever. There's things that are out of your control that are going to jump out in front of you, but you're only going to see them if you're looking. Right? If you're distracted, you're not going to see them. You're going to walk right by them. So th that sounds similar to what you're saying. Um, I don't know if I would say you create your own luck um, because I don't want to imply that if you simply work hard, you know, hard work's not enough. You can't just work hard and then you'll, you'll become fortunate. You have to 
you have to work hard, but that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You have to be willing to put yourself out there, which means taking some risk. And you have to be, you know, you have to be paying attention. If you're just, I don't even know how to say it, but I feel like there's something I want to say around. If you're just showing up to whatever you're doing and working hard at that, you're not going to see those other opportunities because they're not going to they're not going to jump up in front of you. you you've got to put yourself out there, and that's probably what you mean by creating your own luck. So you know, no one was going to reach out to me, right? And and pull me out of um, the situation that I was in. Um, I needed to be proactive about getting out there, and and if you do that, opportunities will pre- present themselves. So so that's my view of luck is you. You have to be proactive. You have to be a little gritty and you've got to be on the lookout. And it, you know, some people, some people are really lucky, meaning that when they do that, something will present, present, present itself right away. And a lot of people aren't that lucky, which doesn't mean that things will, will never fall their way. It just might mean it's going to take longer. And that's what you can't control. You don't know when that opportunity or when that quote unquote luck is going to pre- present itself, but you need right. to be constantly and persistently aware that it could at any moment. So true. And that's a really, that's a really interesting perspective. I like that. Now, moving fast forwarding to today, right? We've seen, and the cannabis industry is notorious for having uh, the power players within it, having to pivot, having to take a step back sometimes, having to, you know, rethink a particular strategy. Just recently, we've seen, um, We've seen a big sweep as far as cannabis legalization goes just earlier this month. How does that impact your work and your day-to-day um, as far as the ever-changing rules and regulations and, mm-hmm. and the future of, of the cannabis industry? How does your day-to-day get impacted by the constant you know, ups and downs or, or roller coaster of a ride, as I like to allude to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think in general right? In general, there's, you know, there's something around adaptability that's really important for both individuals and companies, but in an industry like cannabis that is new and is moving fast, it's, it's like exponentially more important Mm. because, you know, the regulatory landscape's changing and, you know, just so many companies are popping in and, in and out of existence and, you know, consumer, the consumer base is growing, but it's also changing over time as consumers, learn more about themselves by interacting with new types of products and so on and so forth, new types of consumers, you know, becoming consumers that weren't before. So it can have an impact. Um, On the one hand, you know, I think on the regulatory side, it is super important, you know, even if you're not a lawyer or not, you know, not a, not a political person um, in your professional capacity, you still have to keep up to speed on those things. You know, if you're a business operator or even if you're a tech company or even if you're you're a science guy like me, um, just because it, it does matter. So we, don't, we obviously don't know ahead of time in an election like the one we just had, how many of these resolutions are going to pass, how many states are going to come online. We, don't, we, we really don't know. We can guess. And at Leafly, we're pretty good at guessing, actually, because we've got a content team that follows that closely. And they're actually pretty good at predicting what's going to happen based on you know, the polls and other things. But you ultimately don't know. You know, we certainly, it was a pleasant surprise that every, I think every cannabis thing passed. So you've got new states that went from medical to recreational being legal um, and, and, and a bunch of other stuff. And it can, it can change all of a sudden. And if you're not on top of that, 
um, it can be difficult to manage the consequences. So like for Leafly, we, you know, our business is directly affected by whether a state is legal and by whether a legal state has a certain number of licenses, right? So a lot of, a lot of our business comes from retailers. You know, we provide digital products and services to cannabis retailers. And so the number of retailers that can exist in a state is going to then impact our business and our ability to connect consumers with those retailers. And so, you know, I guess you just have to be adaptable. So again, it almost comes back to that idea of uh, plans are useless and planning is essential. We have to be at Leafly, we have to be prepared for any of those outcomes to be there, but we don't know which one is going to be the outcome. But we just have to, you know, you have to have a map of the landscape of possibilities that you've thought about, that you've planned for, and you're going to throw away some of those plans and you're going to have to change a lot of those plans to adapt. But sort of having that map is essential. Taking the time to plan and think about the, the potential outcomes is really the key thing and not getting married to any set of results becoming true, right? Because everyone has a certain set of results they want to be true. And if you get too focused on specific results, whether you're, you're an individual or a business, if you get too focused on individual results that you want to be true, you're going to spend a lot of your time being disappointed because things are usually not going to play out exactly how you wanted them to. And they're often going to play out very differently. But if you're just pre- if you're prepared for the full set of possibilities because you've done the planning, then it's much easier to adapt to whatever happens. Yeah, adaptability seems to be a really big characteristic of folks that are successful in this space and people that are just constantly able to almost reinvent, some, in some cases reinvent, most, most of the time pivot, but just to kind of keep up with the changes, up with the progression and how things are developing in all different verticals. And so adaptability is a very, very big mm-hmm. um, what I see a characteristic of people who can succeed in this space. Yeah. With that said, um, I would assume that you have colleagues and friends that went on to do work in academia and as well as other industries Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. fill in different roles. What do you think working in the cannabis space today, or how do you think working in the cannabis space today gives you an advantage versus getting started in a different industry because of how tough it is and how much adaptability and how much grit it actually mm-hmm. takes to make it here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think being in this industry and being at, at Leafly in particular, you know, the growth rates are high enough and, and the churn is high enough in terms of the people working in different places and churn of companies going in and out of business mm-hmm. and, and, you know, new markets opening up at in different ways, in different places, just, and just the complexity of all the regulations, how fractionated the market is. Everything is so complex in cannabis. Um, and and it, I mean, it is a burden. It's, there's more stuff you've got to learn. There's more stuff you've got to keep track of. Like it's hard to do that, but it being in this industry, doing what I'm doing, as opposed to like, you know, maybe if I'd gone to like Google to try mm-hmm. and be like a, you know, a quote unquote top tier data scientist specializing in, in, in that stuff at a company like that, or if I went to like a pharmaceutical company or a biotechnology company or something like that, I would be much more specialized, which has advantages and disadvantages. But I guess my point is in, in this industry, I am, I am forced to learn about a lot of things that I probably would not have learned about and integrated the knowledge between them for um, if I had gone elsewhere. So like, you know, again, I have to be up to speed on laws and regulations 
and I have to write a lot of contracts of different kinds by working with lawyers. And so there's a lot of like legal, I'm not gonna say legal expertise, but I'm, I'm much more of a legal expert than I would have otherwise been. Um, unless I had gone to law school or something, I've had to learn about, you know, digital marketing and search engine optimization. I didn't even know what that was when I started. Like I knew, I knew there was Google. I knew you Googled stuff and certain things rank higher on Google based on like how good they are. And like, you know, I had a notion of how that stuff to work, but now I know a lot more about it. And, you know, I had to learn about, you know, product, digital product development and product management. How do you actually keep track of a really complicated project and keep track of designers and engineers and understand the different skill sets and personalities the different types of roles tend to select for and how you combine those people to like actually deliver something in a certain amount of time. Um, I've had to learn about business development and re- relationship building in a way that I certainly wouldn't have done in academia. And I probably wouldn't have done if I had gone into a more specialized role, you know, a- as I described. Um, I would have been, you know, entirely focused on the science or the data component. And, and here I'm more of a jack of all trades. And again, there's less specialization. So I'm probably, I'm probably not as sharp in certain specific areas as other friends and colleagues of mine that have taken a more specialized route. But I am, I'm more of a jack of all trades. I've been forced to, to learn a lot. I've been forced to learn a decent amount about everything instead of everything about one thing. And again, that's not better or worse, but that's, I think that is a general characteristic of a tech startup that is still growing. And especially one inside of the cannabis industry where the industry itself is still growing. Interesting. And so one of the things you mentioned was relationship building and how that was one of the things that you started to develop and and get better at. How important, and I'm curious to hear this from from your perspective, because this is something I do on a daily basis, reaching out to editors and connecting with different media influencers, but from someone in your position, how important do you think relationship building is in the cannabis space? And do you think this is something that every single professional coming in, no matter what role they play, should come in and say, okay, I need to sharpen up my relationship building skills if I want to make it in this industry? Yes. Um, and not even in this industry, it's just, I mean, it's really just everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything, everything in life is ultimately, uh, relationships at, when you think about it, everything boils down to the quality of your interpersonal relationships and your relationship with yourself. Um, you know, in this industry in particular, you know, if anything, it's more important just because again, it's, it's new and it's growing. So it's, it's not obvious who, um, it's not obvious who's the best at something. It's not obvious who, who the best partner is. It's not obvious, you know, if you're going to go into something else, you know, if you're, if you want to be, I don't know, if you want to be a YouTube influencer, I mean, it's right in the name. It's like you, like Google controls, you know, streaming video online or self-made video. So it's like, you know, you know where you have to go. And that's, that's not the end of it. But you know, I think in the cannabis industry, if you were starting a company or just starting in a company, um, you don't know who to go to as much. So I think there's a lot more trial and error and a lot more you know, seeking and experimenting, which, which requires you know, a lot more, I think a lot more relationship building ultimately. So you just got to reach out to more people and get a feel for them more and develop an instinct for how to do that and an instinct for how to tell you know, who's, who's a more conscientious 
business operator and who do you personally like and get along with and who has the technology or or the IP to do something that you can't do at your company and how do all those things intersect with each other and you know how do you you know how do you how do you interact with people so that you know you're not just walking around asking people to give you something and and thinking about what you need but simultaneously thinking about what you need and what you can give someone else who can give you that first thing and there's this you know there's th- that type of reciprocity is very important and it's not always obvious even if it seems like it is that that someone will work out in, in say a business partnership um, because there's so many factors. Um, it's not just, do they have the thing that you have? And do you have a thing that they have? It's also like, do you like talking to that person on the phone or are you going to get into a relationship, which is good on paper, but like you, you don't like interacting with that person. Cause that will ultimately affect like the quality of the work and how much you can actually work with them. So um so yeah, I've just gotten, I think a lot more, a lot more experience with that type of thing. Certainly that in academia In academia, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more closed off. Like there's a lot of collaboration, but there's not as many collaboration points. You know, you might have a collaboration with that group over there and like those two people. And it's typically um, pretty straightforward. You're interested in this. They're interested in this. Let's both do this because it's interesting. One of the, one of the hard lessons I learned very early on was, um, you know, in academia, basically everything's about like, what's interesting. You just get to, at some level, like it's, it's not quite that cut and dry, but it's like, I do this because it's interesting. And this person does that because they think it's interesting and we're on interesting problems because they're interesting. And when I started to try and reach out to labs, you know, right away, I knew when I got to Leafly, I knew I was really interested in this lab data, like the, the effects, medical, recreational, that a product is going to have are going to be a function of its chemistry. And everyone probably understands that at some level, but I really understand, understood and saw that early on and that there's this opportunity around, you know, it's legal now. All of these labs have this data. It's all there. There's a lot of stuff to be discovered and a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge to be discovered and then applied by understanding products at that level. But first you've got to get the data. You don't just get it. And to do that, you have to build those relationships. And and I guess the reason I'm telling this is, you know, initially I basically just went out and said, hey, like, can I, can I have some of your data? Because I think it'd be really interesting. And people were like, no. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, this is like, it's not just, it's not just about like, we can do something cool. You have to figure out like, why would someone, why would someone give you something? And the answer to that is always because you can give them something in return. And just learning how to navigate that and structure those conversations so that that you can actually achieve both both sides of that equation. That was that was a treasure chest of information uh, that you just gave myself and our listeners right now about relationship building and you know kind of how to hit the ground running in terms of you know meeting new people, shaking hands, and um, and building those bridges. You touched on reciprocity a lot. And that's something that I'm a, I'm a big believer in myself for those listening who are, you know, maybe not extroverts or maybe they're a little bit shy or they're not necessarily comfortable with relationship building just yet and meeting new people. Is there looking back on, on, you know, the first days of you getting started reaching out to, to labs and different organizations, what's, what's 
probably the best advice that you can give somebody who's kind of just starting out and setting out on that path? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's, it's a good question for me because I am that type of person. Um, I, I'm not an extroverted person. I can't spend an entire day in meetings, talking to people, or, or rather I can, but I'm very tired after that. Mm. Um, I, it doesn't come natural to me. And so I guess I would say, well, part of the answer, it's, it's not a very sexy answer, but part of the answer is you just have to do it. You just have to uh, keep doing it. Like if you're not good at something, the best way to get good at it is to do it many times repetitiously. And it's, I mean, frankly, it might suck sometimes. It might be very uncomfortable, but I, you know, I think a good piece of meta advice for anyone is, you know, learning to, uh, learning to achieve a certain level of, of comfortable, learning to achieve a certain level of comfort with being uncomfortable. Um, because, you know, we could talk about this example or any other example, but you're, you're, you're almost always going to, you're almost always going to um, have a lot of discomfort in your life. You're, you're, no matter what you're doing, even if you're doing something that you're passionate about that you're good at, it's going to involve doing a lot of other things that make you uncomfortable. Um, like no one, um, you know, you know how a lot of people say, um, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't buy that. I think that's total bullshit. Um, I think you find something you love and then you work at it every day of your life. Um, I don't think, uh, I don't think, uh, I, I don't know why this example is coming to me, but there was, um, there was like the HBO or the ESPN documentary, uh, earlier this year. It was like right at the beginning of the pandemic about the Chicago bulls. Did you see that? I didn't know. It was really good. It's called, um, it's called the last dance. Um, even, even if you're not into basketball or not into Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and that whole era. It's, it's still really good. Um, and it really follows them their last season when they won their sixth championship. And, you know, it goes back and, and it goes through like the whole history of that team for all six championships and all the personalities from Michael Jordan to the coach and, and everyone else. But, you know, Michael Jordan's just sort of a, he's this iconic person that everyone's heard of. He obviously did the thing that he loved. He loved basketball. He was excellent at it. He was potentially the best at it. He excelled at it, but it wasn't like every single day. It was just like carefree. Oh, this is great. I'm doing what I love. No, it was like really brutally hard work every step of the way. So I think, you know, no matter what you're doing, if, if you're on a path that you're satisfied with, um, you're still going to be doing a lot of things that make you uncomfortable. You're still going to need to learn things that maybe you didn't know you needed to learn. Maybe you don't even want to learn. Maybe you don't even particularly enjoy doing them at all, but they are going to assist you in that bigger thing that you're working towards, whatever that is. And so, you know, I know it's not, it's not a magic bullet, but I think if, if there's something you're not good at and something that you need to cultivate, you, you just need to do it repetitiously. And if, if that means doing it on your own, so be it. I think, you know, if you can identify, I guess this, this gets back to relationship building. If you can identify someone in your organization or someone adjacent to you that is good at it and that you get along with, um, talk to that person or watch that person. I mean, that's how little kids learn, you know, most of what they learn, right? They just, they watch other people and they copy them. So like, I'm constantly looking at other people, even if I, there's people that 
are almost like mentors to me that I've, I've barely ever talked to. Mm-hmm. Or I, I, it's not like I talk to them every day at work and they're not my manager, but I, I watch them. Like, oh, that person is really good at this. I'm just going to watch them. I'm literally going to copy them. I'm going to pay attention to what they say and how they say it and their body language. And I'm going to try it. And the first time you try anything, you know, it's not smooth. It's not perfect. You know, you're awkward. It probably looks like you're trying to do something, but you know, like anything like riding a bike, you know, eventually if you just get on the bike enough, it becomes second nature. Yeah. I I love, I love what you said, especially about, you know, if you can, if you can learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, that was, that was spot on. And that's some of the best, best advice that I've ever been given as well. Um, I think ultimately if, and I think you and I kind of share the same philosophy on this and it's that if you continue to seek comfort, you will eventually be uncomfortable. Um, Yeah. 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 In fact, no, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I don't even think it's that you should seek comfort. You should seek comfort, but just know that you're going to be uncomfortable along the way. I think it's actually more stronger than that. Like you should actually seek discomfort at some level. I think um, one of the things that I do, this sounds silly, but it's like thematically, I think part of what we're talking about. Um, like if I go for a walk, if I'm either going for a walk just to go for a walk, you know, with the lockdown and everything, that's, that's just part of my routine. Now I, I physically get up and make myself walk a couple miles. But even if, you know, if I need to go somewhere, run an errand and, you know, let's just say it's a mile away. I live in downtown Seattle, downtown Seattle. I can go downtown by different routes. Some of those routes are relatively flat. It's a pretty easy walk. And if I turn certain ways, I might have to go up hill, which is harder to do. Um, whenever I go somewhere or I go for a walk, I try to never take the exact same path. And I often purposely choose the less convenient path just because I know that I'm, I'm sort of training my subconscious to be okay with that. Like instead of taking the straight path or taking, taking the route that is literally the easiest to physically walk, I will go literally out of my way. I will walk up the hill. I'll take a roundabout path. Um, literally because it's more difficult. Um, and just, I think little things like that, like you don't want to just spend all your whole day just doing things inefficiently, obviously. But I think if you can add, add a lot of little, little micro challenges into your life like that, um, I feel like that probably does help train my brain to be okay with discomfort. That's really interesting. And another thing that I want to ask you as someone who's, who studied neuroscience and is very well, well versed in that, does does putting yourself in new environments also help stimulate creativity? Because if you're constantly just going through the same motion and everything mm-hmm. tends to be relatively easy because you just continue to do it, I feel like it's it's moments like that or time periods like that where we are the least stimulated creatively. Is there some 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 uh, truth behind that? Yeah, I, I think there definitely is. Um, you know, we know that animals exposed to novel environments and exposed to novelty, you know, their brains are going to react and do things very differently from an animal that's always in the same environment. An animal that's always in the same environment will get really good at executing something very efficiently and very fast. But a novel, being exposed to a novel environment is important for learning and plasticity. 
um, and, and the earlier, the earlier that you're exposed to, you know, a range of environments, the better. Um, so I really do think there is something to that. Like we know, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've really dug into this literature in detail, but, you know, I believe there's a literature out there about things like, you know, cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and, and just things in, in that area. And, you know, a really good thing as a general rule of thumb, you know, if, if you were someone who is older and someone who's experiencing some sort of cognitive decline, typically one of the things that you can do to help counteract that is just be exposed to a novel environment. Hmm. The environment has to be safe. You know, in general, you should think of an environment as one that's novel and there's a, a degree of safety that the animal identifies. Like, you know, it's okay to explore this environment versus one that's that's scary, basically, that's going to be anxiety inducing. But yeah, I would encourage everyone to seek out novelty. Um, I think you should always do that throughout your life. And the earlier, the earlier that you can develop the habit of seeking out novelty, which is going to mean seeking out discomfort. Those are almost the same thing, I think, in many cases. Um, the, the better off you're going to be because your brain, your brain will learn the statistics of those different environments. And it will be, and it will not only learn the statistics of different environments that you're exposed to, but if you, if you expose yourself as a matter of habit to different environments, your brain will also get better at learning how to switch between contexts just as a general rule. And I think that's a, that's a muscle that you definitely want to cultivate. And, and just like, you know, just like your physical muscles in your arm, like if you go to the gym every week and you build your muscles and you get into shape and then you stop, your muscles will atrophy. They're not going to stay that way forever. And the circuits in your brain, I think you can think about them in, in a similar way. If you stop doing things um, or you never start doing them, you're not going to build certain connections or connections that you have built will atrophy. And yeah, I think it's very important on the one hand to have routines so that there is some consistency and stability in your life. And you do have things that you are really perfecting and really getting down to, um, to the level of unconscious execution. You know, when you're really good at something, you've done it a thousand times, you can do it without even thinking about it. Right. Right. This, I mean, all of us have examples of this in our lives. The fact that we're talking right now, fluently is because, you know, we spent years of our early life struggling, uh, <laughs> to, to make sounds coherently. Um, but we do it every day. That's why it's fluent. But at the same time, you also need to make sure that even, even when you get really good at stuff, and even when there's a level of comfort and consistency in your life, which a lot of people are striving for, you know, always, always inject some of that novelty and discomfort in so that, you know, the, the mental muscles around adapting don't, to new new environments don't atrophy um, because they will yeah that's um that's really insightful it makes a lot of sense i think a lot of folks who constantly tend to just make progress and and get from point a to point b from b to c and they they never stop they do a lot of that i think they they put themselves in new situations and to your point i think there is a fine line between you know, anxiety inducing environments and environments where there is some kind of new stimuli, but you still feel relatively safe and comfortable to a certain extent. Um, yeah. So that's, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I think you, you know, you always want a home base, which, which can literally mean a home base, or it can be sort of a metaphor. You always want a home base where, you know, what's going to happen, you know, what to expect, you know, what you're good at, you know, how to operate, but you want the ability to always step outside of that. 
And, and that's going to cause a little anxiety, but it's like, you want a little anxiety. You certainly don't want too mm-hmm. much, but you, you, you want to make sure that you have a little anxiety in your life. Because if you don't have any, then you're not putting yourself into those new environments and you'll, you'll be really good at home base. But if something, if something in in the outside world, if something in the outside context changes and and home base isn't viable anymore, then you're screwed. Yeah. So true. So true. Um, Nick, I want to be conscious of your time. I I really appreciate you coming on today. I'd love to wrap up with just one more question. And this is a question that I love to ask all of our guests. And the question is, if you could go back in time and give the younger Nick some advice, whether it be personal or professional, what would that advice be? I think it would be some, something similar to what we were talking about before. Um, learn to make peace with the grind as early as possible. Cause mm. like, like, because it's always a grind. Like there's no, there's, there's nothing you're going to start doing. There's no place that you get to. And it's like, okay, now, now life is going to be easy. I'm going to be making more money. I'm going to be doing what I'm doing. All my relationships are going to be, you know, exactly where I want them to be. Like it's that, that isn't real. Like it's always a grind. Um, it's, it's like, it's like that other thing we were talking about. Like I, I just remember hearing so many times growing up, you know, that phrase and ones like it, you know, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I, I do not, I do not endorse that. I think you should, you should exterminate that type of thinking as early as possible. That's what I would tell myself because it's always going to be a grind. You can find stuff that you love and find stuff you're passionate about. That's what you need to do. Identify what you're passionate about or what you're interested in as early as you can. And then, and then work at that, make the grind, you know, make the grind align with that. Train yourself, train yourself to start believing that, you know, the, the daily and the weekly grind is actually making you better at, at that thing that you're passionate about, or it's getting you closer to that thing that you're passionate about. Um, if you, if you develop the other mindset, I mean, the other mindset is really, okay, there's something I could be doing. There's something I could be pursuing such that I'm never going to work a day in my life. I'm just going to love it. It's not, I'm going to get away from the grind. That's not real. And if you think it's real, you're going to be disappointed for your entire life, I think, because it's, it's always a grind. Great advice. Absolutely love it. Nick, thank you so much for coming on today. If there's anybody out there that wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to, uh, to reach out to you? Um, I think the best way for someone who's just listening is probably just to follow me on Twitter um, at uh, trichomes. So it's basically uh, a play on my last names, T-R-I-K-O-M-E-S. Um, and I don't always, you know, I'm, I'm not going to promise that I'll see everything that someone might send me or read every message, but I do try to respond as long as someone sends me something uh, thoughtful. And um, I'm, I'm relatively active on there. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, Nick, keep up the great work. Uh, I'm excited to see you know, what new, new challenges and, and obstacles you, you overcome over the next couple of, uh, couple of years and accomplishments that come your way, continued success. And thank you so much for, for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. All right. That is it for episode three of a major journey. Hope everybody enjoyed the show and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's show to check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.